Brothers and sisters, beloved, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're about fourth uh, or fifth uh, of the whole thing uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, fifth way in. It's almost over, and you'll see that we are actually at the very end of the sermon itself, and there will be an explanation. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Very familiar passage. You will recognize it right away. Uh, and my job is to clearly explain what Jesus meant. It's not to say that Jesus is not clear. It's been a while you know, since Jesus spoke, and there's a lot of between him and us today. There's sinfulness, there's world, there's history, there's a lot of stuff that goes in between that help us they're not helping us to, to get the right meaning. But if you're there, I entitled this sermon, Pray Like a Beggar, Act Like a Son. Pray like a beggar, act like a son. Let's read this passage together, pray, and let die vin. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you? Who when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Father, we thank you for this text. Make it clear to us and apply to our lives. Through the power of the Spirit, I pray. Amen. Have you ever lost your car keys? Probably everybody knows what you know, you're ready to go to work and you look for your car keys and you're late and you can't find it. And so the world stops spinning, right? Everybody stop what they're doing, your wife, your kids, everybody drop whatever you do. It's a second of, of the importance right now. The priority is to find your keys because everything hinges on that. And so you look through your couches and you look through your pockets and you look through everywhere you possibly could and then after like half an hour of exhaustion and every exhaustion of all your resources and everybody is tired, you remember to pray. And then you pray and then you remember that you drop them in your dirty clothes in the laundry and you go and you find them and you go. It happened to us, right? Jesus is creating a picture here is somewhat of the same sense. He's preaching to a bunch of people who think they are in the kingdom, but they're actually sitting by the gate, and they're not in. And the only thing that is between them and the kingdom is the locked doors, and they need a key. They need a key to enter and they try their own keys. Everyone comes in and try their own keys, but they can't get in because there's only one key that fits in. It is the righteousness of Christ. In this illustration, the kingdom is the kingdom of God. The gates is the gates to enter eternal life, and the keys are righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is why I called, as you're sitting before this gate, you pray like a beggar because you don't have it. And then when you enter, it seems like you enter to your car and you act like a boss because now you have it and you drive it. And so Jesus is saying, you rely on the spirit to let you in. Apart from God, you cannot. To summarize in one statement, that is written in your bulletin, the main point of what I try to communicate is that you seek the divine grace in order to meet the divine requirements. 
You cannot mean divine requirements, neither to enter into the kingdom nor act in the kingdom like a son, unless you rely completely on the divine grace. That resonates with us, with the believers. Now, Jesus, and I'm going to set the stage. Jesus started his sermon in chapter 5, verse 3. If you go with me there, please. Chapter 5, verse 3. And you see how he started his sermon. How he invites everyone to the kingdom. But he said, you have to admit that you are a beggar. That you are a bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, you don't have the key. You don't have the righteousness. And then he ends up with an impossible command in seven, chapter, 12, chapter 7, verse 12 says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And he said, look, this is the standard for this kingdom. You cannot get in, nor can you act in the kingdom apart from the power of the spirit that apply to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, as we are in this text, I want us to take this text in four aspects, in four basic points. Number one, Jesus is communicating the great demand of the kingdom. Number one, the great demand of the kingdom. That is what Jesus was saying from the beginning. That is why he's pleading with them saying, you have to ask You have to ask because you don't have it. You have to seek because you didn't find it yet. You have to knock when you find the gate. The proper key to unlock the Sermon on the Mount, it's not about how you should live, but this is what you're lacking. And Jesus said, look at the great demand of the kingdom. Because those people, like most of us today, sitting in the churches thinking that we are in, Most of people, unbelievers, will be surprised that they're not. And Jesus is saying, do not be deceived. The standard of the kingdom is so high that nothing will fit in the door apart from Jesus' righteousness. In the greatest context of the sermon, if you go back with me again to chapter 5, I'm just going to set the stage of this great, great demand of the kingdom that the great demand of the kingdom is the spiritual righteousness, not just fleshly righteousness. And he makes this connection into an internal, you know, things of the sermon. He said the demand for the superior righteousness of kingdom is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Do you have it? Do you have it? Chapter 5 or 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that... They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is this is what happens to the Christianity today, that it shines so much that people are glorifying? I mean, it's hard. If that would be not, you know, hard enough, verse 20 of chapter 5, he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, your personal righteousness, your fleshly righteousness will not surpass the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The standard is so, so high. If this is not going to be enough, in chapter 5, verse 48, he says, therefore, you are to be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. That brings to mind the scripture from Old Testament. David writes in Psalm 24, verse 3 to 6. He said, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? People think that they can. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, it says that from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom suffers violence and people taking it by force. You cannot force yourself in because you don't have the righteousness. Your key don't match. The psalmist continues, he says, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood? Who among us could say, well, I never lied? That would be lie, right? And has not sworn deceitfully? Who has promised and always did what he promised? Who among us do that? 
He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, guarantee. But the standard is so high, and Jesus is working up this, this point that at, at some point you have to admit it is too high. It is too high. You know, I need help with this. If I would be listening to Jesus' sermon back then, I would say at some point, I need help. I, I don't have it. Be realistic. Be honest with yourself. Don't just pat yourself on the shoulder and say, well, I'm actually better than the other man. And this is what our failure comes in from the context. Context from the sermon in chapter 6 particularly, that when you think that you're righteous, several things happen to you. In chapter 6, verse 1, he said that the men of this righteousness prones us and produce hypocrisy. It produced hypocrisy because now I have to pretend like I'm in, in the kingdom. I have to pray like I am in the kingdom. I have to give like I am. But it's all superficial. Jesus said, well, it's internal. It's empowered by the spirit. It's the spiritual righteousness. You cannot produce it. And he said, do not be hypocrite. The men of the righteousness produces our failure, hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, 19, the demand of righteousness can produce worries. Like when you place your trust in yourself, you'll be disappointed because you cannot trust yourself or you trust in the money that that's going to get you in and you will be worried and disappointed and you fail. The demand of righteousness can bear, breed judgmentalism like we read in chapter 7, verse 1 to 5 last time. You start comparing yourself with others, saying, look, I'm actually better than you, and so therefore I must be in the kingdom. And you look at the, at the speck in people's eyes, and you pretend that you are better, but Jesus said, no, you're not. There's a two by four sticking out of your, both of your eyes. And he said, you are hypocrite. I mean, what a direct language. <laughs> he, till this moment, he just kind of generally speaking about people, but now he said, you, hypocrite. But as we transition here and we see this, this demand is high, and that is why Jesus is saying to them in verse 7, he comes back to the, to the subject of prayer. Why in the world he already spoke about subject of prayer. He taught us how to pray before, but why now? But because at this point, you should start pleading with the Lord and saying, get me in. And if you don't get me in by your righteousness, I will never be there. I will never be there. I have nothing to offer, nothing to show for. This is the picture. People at the gate with the wrong keys, they tried everything, and Jesus showing and point that their hypocrisy. He said, "You're not in. You need something else. You need something else." Now that leads us to point number two: the great demand of the kingdom leads us to the great need of a sinner. Great need of a sinner. And the great need of a sinner. I'm not going to keep you in dispense. Spiritual righteousness. That is what your greatest need. Spiritual righteousness of Christ. That is why he said in verses 7 to 8, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, will be open. Two things here. Jesus communicates to us that we are spiritually bankrupt by saying, teaching us to pray. Why do you ask and seek and knock, usually? It's not because you have it. You usually ask and seek and knock when you need something desperately, when you come to the end of your resources. When the most Christian, most uh, Christian pray, at what point of their life? When something goes wrong, right? When somebody got sick and you cannot heal, when someone is on the dying bed, bad and you cannot help. When you lost your money and then you come to the Lord, right? This is when we prone to go, when we are depleted our resources and we pray and we appear before him as a beggar now and say, please bless us because we truly are 
poor in spirit. We are reminded here by Jesus that we are inadequate for anything. We think that we are, that we're able to do something, but Jesus said, look, in the very basic fact, you can get enter into the kingdom. Everything is hinges on the spirit. We are inadequate. We're desperate in our condition and our hearts and helpless to stand against the schemes of the devil, against the world, against the flesh. We need Christ and his righteousness and his spirit. That is why Bible teaches us to pray, to come to him always. He said, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. You people pour out hard before him, Psalm 62 said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, Isaiah 55, 6 says. Therefore, Jesus has said, you need, you need, desperately need this kingdom. You desperately need this key, this righteousness, and you don't have it. And the second point is here that you are needed here is what do you need? What exactly do you need? It's not a card blanche, the promise of Jesus. You know, people quote this passage often, and I hear that with relation to everything that they could think of. But except the right thing, what Jesus is telling them to ask. We have the list of prayers. When you pray, what do you pray for? You pray for a lot of different things, and I've been in prayer groups, and I pray the same prayers. We have a list of things that we need. But very rarely I hear a prayer that actually matters, that actually asks of what Jesus tells us in this particular text to ask for. Do you think he, he tells us to ask for a little bit more life, a couple of hours of life, more money, protection? Does he teach us to pray for these and ask and 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 seek and and knock for these things? No, the context says that God is prone and teaches us to ask for his presence and righteousness. When was the last time that you prayed for that? When did you pray that the Lord, may you give me your righteousness? May you have mercy on me, and may you give me grace. May you change me. May you forgive me my sins. May you transform me into the image of Jesus Christ. May you do it today. When I get up, may I be in the spirit and walking as you walk. May I be loving. Where is that thing of the kingdom thing appears in your list? The broad context says that this is what you need. This is what you're lacking. The spiritual reality and righteousness lacks in us. But we often ask about the secondary thing. It's like it would be weird in the people at the Titanic when they learned that it's sinking, that they would start seeking something like maybe the table at the window, at the restaurant, right? Or maybe to, to find a brick of gold, that would be weird because one thing on their mind was the salvation and the lifeboat. That's what they need. And so that's why would they ask? The problem is not that we don't ask, like James said, but that we ask of the wrong things. That is why Jesus repeating in chapter 6, verse 33, go back with me there. And it's a very important verse. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It tells us what to seek. It's just so plain. It's like you are looking for his kingdom. You're not looking for your kingdom. You're not going to the gates of the Bill Gates kingdom. You're not looking for the kingdom of this world and try to match the key. You need to find God's kingdom when he is the boss. And when you find those gates, what does it say that you seek next? You seek the kingdom, and when you find the kingdom, you seek his righteousness. That's what gets you in. That is what working in, in the kingdom. What are we asking for? 
We come to this text and we justify many things, just ask. And we use in God as this like celestial slot machine. We just, as long as you pray sincerely to him, as long as you pray more than one time and just he will give you what you want. Just claim it and name it and claim it. Just believe it and God will give it to you. Well, that's not the point. He says, seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Take your righteousness off because you don't have it. Do not try to get in by fleshly abilities. Do not act if you are in the kingdom like you got in by your fleshly things or you start trying to do by your flesh pleading the, pleasing the Lord. That is why Jesus said in the beginning of the sermon, right in chapter four, he said, repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Stop bursting in. Stop trying in. And he commanded us the method like a beggar. The method of the prayer is like a beggar's here. It's like you've seen the beggars today when you drive in. You know, they just sit. You know, they beg. You know, even probably this is not a good example. They could go and work. But what do you think when you see the beggar? What do you think? What's association? You probably think, oh, you could go and work, and, but, you know, you could justify things. But we don't usually like the beggar, right? We don't, we don't like to be a beggar. We're trying to do by our own things everything. But Jesus said, you are. Just admit it. You are. And you beg. And you beg for mercy. And beg for grace. Three simple commands. Asking. It's your responsibility to ask. It is your responsibility to ask. To get in door in heavenly kingdom, it is your responsibility. Now, the fact that you are unable or you don't see it or you don't want it has nothing to do with this. It's your responsibility. And if you go to hell, it is because you didn't ask. Because the promise is so clear. If you would ask, you will receive. Sinner is responsible for his actions. Don't justify yourself. Look, oh, I was unable to walk by the Spirit. You didn't ask. Because every time you do, he's faithful and righteous and he supplies what you need. Yeah, we're all guilty and we're standing outside of these doors because we followed our father, Adam. But it is our responsibility. And Jesus said, as a beggar, you ask. You ask. You are poor in spirit, aren't you? This is the first step of humility. Then he said, seek. Seek shows priority. As I give an example, when you lost those keys, everything stops and your priority is number one. You need to find them. That's it. Well, this is what, 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 where your heart is, what your treasure is, there's your heart will be also. If your treasure is God, you will try to find him and seek him. And by the way, it's repeated action. It says, just don't ask one time. Keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Keep knocking. Jesus gave this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearl. Seeking. He realized that there is one. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. For the kingdom of God, you will sell everything. Or think about Jesus' story of the woman searching for a lost coin. That woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not... She, would she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? She burns the candle so that you could find one. Or a shepherd, when you lost one out of 100 sheep, he leaves 99 and go and find one. Why? Because that's where the treasure is. And he goes and find it. Keep on seeking. And you will seek what is important to you. And if you don't seek, it is because not. And Jesus said, keep knocking. You know, keep knocking. Puritan Thomas Menton wrote that, if we don't receive by asking, then let us seek. If we don't receive by seeking, let us knock. Knocking means drama at the door. It's repeated action. You just don't come up to the door and say, okay, just going to knock one time and stay and wait forever. No, 
you will knock. The English word comes from a knock from, from German word meaning to press, to press on. And meaning that you stand and knock it. And you know, and you say, well, I know you're there. I know you're there. Please open. I hear you moving. Why don't you open? Don't hide from me. I can hear your voice. Open up. And you keep up knocking. Jesus gave this illustration in Luke chapter 11, verse 5, when he similar, at the similar sermon, he said, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in a bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, that is because his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you, you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. You see the picture? You know, you have no excuse, a sinner, standing by the gates and say, well, I'm not in because God didn't chose me. You didn't ask. You didn't seek. You didn't press on. And if you did, you ask for the wrong thing. You ask for that health, for the prolonging of life, for that another car, for your wealth, and we're all guilty of that. Instead, we should ask for mercy and grace. Let me explain just briefly. What is mercy and grace? When you stand before God's kingdom, that you're able to go only by the righteousness, and all you, all you have is your own righteousness which is like a rotten egg. It smells bad. God needs to remove that from you, from your righteousness. It doesn't cut it. And so that is mercy, that he doesn't treat you according to your righteousness. He doesn't. And he gives you mercy. But then when he does that, he gives you grace, which means that someone earned it, righteousness. And he dressed you up like if you did. And that is grace. You have not worked for it. Now, it would be very, very silly and very evil to attribute that it is you, actually. After you've been cleansed and washed and dressed in the righteousness of Christ, you would say, well, actually, I got in by myself here. It is my, inherently, I did this. That would be very sinful. That is why we are humble before God, knowing that if we are in, it is only by mercy and by grace. Well, that's not all. When you ask for the right thing, for the right key, for the right righteousness, for the spiritual righteousness, there is a great promise. The point number three, the great promise of the Father that he will give you what you ask. He will. Verses seven to eight, it says that God is assure us. The Lord tells us in this text that though we are a great beggar, God is our great giver. He gives because he loves to give. It is 100% reliable grace here, 100%. It says, for everyone who asked, receive, everyone. And then he gives us this illustration and analysis, how good God is. God is so great and so generous that he will never turn away people who ask of him. Jesus assures his following that far from demanding the impossible, he's providing the means Otherwise, it's impossible. The grace, the divine grace, allow us to have something that we would never dream of. Ability to be in the kingdom and walk like a son. He reminds us to look at the Father and so we'll ask of him because it's all from him. But another thing is here that it's the, it, the promise is for everyone. Everyone who asks in humility and faith gets grace from God. Please don't miss this pronoun, everyone. It is a grace-filled pronoun, everyone. What a goodness of the Father display here that everyone who asks receive, everyone. One of the greatest examples of everyone is someone who was hanging on the cross by Jesus, 
who had definitely nothing to show. There's nothing. He spent his life probably stealing and killing. Probably hurting a lot of people. And then at the, at the end of his life, he was hanging on the cross and he pleaded for mercy. And he was granted. Now, this is everyone. Now, you think that, oh, I'm better than this thief. You'll be surprised when you come to the heaven in the heavenly kingdom and your eyes will be open. You would not be able to say, actually, you know, I got in here partially because I was not like him. You will see yourself as bad as him. That is why many will be surprised. Why is he in the kingdom? I'm not. Why? Well, because he believed and he accepted and he was granted this mercy. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, to the beggar, to the bankrupt. And this is assurance for everyone who believes. <laughs> you know, we memorized verse with children last Sunday. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I was trying to explain what faith means. And I asked them, what is faith? And they said, well, faith is trusting. I said, well, that's another synonym for faith. What is faith, though? So they're trying to wrap their mind. I said, well, don't worry. Most believers can't explain what faith is. It's hard. Let me just give you an illustration. And I said, faith is when you believe a person that he is telling the truth. He's believing God that he said, I got you through Jesus Christ, and you will be with me in paradise. Just trust me. Now, you can't see it, but you hope for it. Because why? You trust the person. And I said, in my pocket, there is a marker. Everyone who believes me, please stand. Everyone who does not, sit down. And the whole class with about 15, 16 people, they sit down. They didn't stand. And I said, do you know who I am? They said, well, oh, yeah, we know who you are. I said, I'm a pastor of this church, one of the pastors of the church. You don't believe me? And I said, no, we don't. You don't have the marker in your pocket. And to their surprise, I pull out the, part, the marker. And they said, wow. And I said, let's try again. Do you believe me? I said, yes. I have another marker in my pocket. And they said, no, we don't. You don't have it. And to their surprise, I pull out one more. And they said, wow. I said, in this pocket, believe me, I have two markers. And some believers stood up. And I pull out two. That's faith. That's faith. You have not seen it, but he promised you the righteousness of Christ. You might not even experience it, like walking in this righteousness. It's alien to you. You just become Christian. You, you try to love people and you fail, but you trust him that his righteousness gets you in. Do you have it? Is that what you ask for? Is that is your priority? Because God guarantees that if you ask, you will receive. And he gives us an analogy of the bread and the fish. And he said, look, if, if, the, if you are being evil, and don't, don't get it wrong, we are all evil. And he said, you are evil. Every one of you here, evil. I'm evil. And if you are being evil, you are able to give good gifts to your children. How much more? You know, it's interesting that in that time, that was the food, bread, that looks like a rock, a little bit, pebbles, and little fish that if a little child, like let's say one year old or two years old, could you know, mix with the snake, you know, doesn't know the difference, 11, child, 11 parents would not deceive his child. And if you see him taking the, the rock and eating, he said, don't do that, please. It's, it's not food, it's not gonna give you. God will supply what you need as you supply to your children, like, like you supply carbs and protein, right? Bread is carbs and protein is a fish, so you supply what they need. 
for their lives. And Jesus is saying, the promise of God is that he will supply what you really, really need. And if you're hungry for righteousness of Christ, he will give it to you. He will grant it to you. And he will correct us. When you're looking for something else, he will bring us back and say, well, no, that's not what you need, son. That's not what you need, child. You need my righteousness. You need my righteousness. And Jesus said, if you then be in evil, who knows how to give good gifts, look at the Father, how much who is not evil, who is perfect and kind, how much more will he give? So this promise of assurance because of God is good and because he cares for people. But see how much he cares. When we give the children good gifts, we try to give them the best, right? We, we just, we don't go like uh, you know, in a restaurant and, and pick the worst food and say, well, you get this, right? because it's like five bucks. Right. You're just going to get this junk food. So we try to feed them the best. When we ask the Father for his righteousness, he gives us the best. And you know what he gives us? The righteousness of Christ doesn't come just by itself. Go with me to Luke chapter 11, and you're, you're going to clarify this text by Luke chapter 11, verse 11 to 13. Actually, verse 13. It's the same, same story. But in verse 13, he explained exactly how this righteousness come to us. This righteousness doesn't come just as a dress of Jesus. It comes with a person. Look, it says, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father gift what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. One amazing thing that God is just He's not reducing his righteousness to line up with our righteousness, but he gives us the righteousness of Christ. He sent him to perform for us, but also that he doesn't send this righteousness just by itself. It's like, okay, now you, now you try the best, like try to copy. He sent the person right inside of us to convince us of his love and also teach us how to walk and empower us to do the same as a son. And so we shift from the beggar who had nothing to the son who has the spirit. And now we're in. And now we're in business of God's righteousness. He gives us the spirit, the person who helps us. You know, do you say this sometimes when you come home? You say, well, Trinity arrived. Well, it kind of is because you have the spirit of God and Christ and of the Father. He treats us, not because we earn, but because he gave us the Spirit and he loves us. Without understanding that he gives you the Spirit, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 would not make any sense. What does it have to do after this pleading with God for things and that he promise you to give, he gives us this impossible command. He says, in everything, therefore. The word therefore is very important because it's hinges. It's not a separate story right now. It's like, okay, therefore, we're going to talk about something else. No, he said, therefore, since you are a beggar, understand that you need righteousness. You've been given this key of righteousness of Jesus. Now you dress up. You've been given the best gift that God could possibly give you, the Holy Spirit. Now you're in, therefore. Now there is a possibility to be empowered by the Spirit to actually do this verse. Read with me. It says, this great commandments, point number four, the great commandment that the righteousness is expressed and empowered in everything. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, at this time, I just want to ask, we're talking about righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. What comes into your mind when you think about righteousness? When we think about righteousness, it comes to our mind right or wrong. And most of the time, by the rules. It is wrong because the rule said this wrong, or it is right because the rule said it's right. 
It's like you're driving on freeway, and there's a right way of driving and wrong way of driving. It's like you could squirrel back and forth, but it's wrong way of driving. You could speed up, but it's wrong. And when we're thinking about righteousness, and when you drive normally, you think that you are righteous because you're driving by the speed limit. And you attribute righteousness because you're obedient to the rule. But the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here, are you ready for this? The righteousness that Jesus is talking about is love. It's not rule, it's love. He said, all the rules are accomplished because of this. Check this out, he said, and everything, therefore treat people the same way you want to treat them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Does this remind you of anything when people said, well, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, there are two. One is to love your God and then love your neighbor. And this is exactly when Paul was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love your brother, because in this hinges all the prophets. And Jesus saying the same thing. This is the golden rule by which people live, but you are impossible to live by if you don't have love. Love is how righteousness expresses itself. It's not just simple, strict obedience to these little tiny rules. You know how many rules in the New Testament? I was surprised. A lot. As soon as I find it right now. 1,642 commandments in New Testament. Oh, you could get lost. Oh, what should I do? And James says this, and John says this, and Paul says this, and Paul says again this. And so you get lost. 1642 commandments. When Jesus is saying, look, the whole prophet and the Old Testament is com- combined, it just revealed itself. The whole righteousness in, in love is ability to love. That is the golden rule. Now, it's interesting that the world tried to emulate this, and the world would say to you, don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. That's what people do. Like, don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. Don't give them evil. Don't do that. It's like Rabbi Hillel, about 20 years before Jesus, he, he, the Gentiles come to him, and, and he said, well, can you summarize, if you, if you summarize the whole law in one statement, until I will be able to stand on my one foot, I will be converted to Judaism. And so the smart, Halel, he said, here it is, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, and the rest of the commentary. Now, I don't know the story whether he did that or not, you know, converted to Judaism, but... The point is that it is only Jesus who turns us to the positive. Because everybody said, well, just don't, don't, don't touch the stinker. Okay? Don't touch the skunk, and the skunk will not you know, harm you. Don't, don't do that evil to these people so that they don't do evil to you. But Jesus said, no, that's not enough. He said, look, you actually have to do something. You have to express love. And it doesn't hinge on the way how they would treat you back. It doesn't say, well, unless they would treat you back. He said, no, no, no. You always, you always treat them like you want to be treated. That is the golden rule. It is a basic principle of love. And it kind of hinges on your appreciation of yourself. Jesus is just going to the bottom line of everything. He said, you know whom you love the most? Yourself. Yourself. That's a a fact. That is a fact. You love yourself a lot. You know, if you drive an unfreeway and and you see the car, your car just starts steaming out and, and, you know, it just blow up. And you don't say, well, whoa, praise the Lord that it's my car, not my neighbor's. It's like you're, you're, you love yourself. You want the best for yourself. And Jesus said, well, this is the rule. Every time you treat others, like treat them as you want it to be treated, whether they will or not. And the fact is, 
that most likely they will not. They will not treat you good. We read it in 1 John, so do not be surprised, do not be deceived, brothers, that, that the love, the world will hate you. It, it will, of course. For every good deed, you will get this, you will slap in the face. You will. And no matter what, because you've been loved by God and answered with this righteousness, now you have the ability to do that to others, regardless whether they do it to you or not. Now, I'll tell you, if we would follow this verse, there would be no marriage counselings whatsoever. There would be, there's no counselling because like, hey, I just want to, you know, you being really, really harsh with me right now. And, and so I just want to be treating you like I want to be treated. And you'd be nice, right? There'd be no, if everybody's asking and doing the same thing, there would be no problems. It would be ideal. Paul knows this principle. He said, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. So this is the bottom line. If you forget everything in Scripture, and you got in the fight or in the problem or in the confusion, you come back and say, well, how would I want to be treated? How was I treated? And I treat it with love. That is the righteousness. What is the right thing to do right now? Is to love. That is right. You want to be righteous? You love like Jesus told you to love. That is righteousness. Don't score the points of every different commandments. This is the one that will enable you to fulfill what God requires requires of you. You know, this rule would help us to resolve thousands of dilemmas that we're facing in life. How would you want to be treated? Good. There's always one answer. Good. So treat others good. Do you want to respect from other people? Well, respect them. Whether they respect you or not, that's what you want. Respect them. Do you want kindness from people? Well, treat them with kindness, whether they treat you or not. Be kind. Do you want understanding? That people understand your situation? Well, try to understand others. That's what you want. You want to feel compassion? Well, be compassionate to others. Do you want to be fair? That people fair with you? Well, be fair with them, whether they are or not. Do you want to be praised? Well, start praising people for what they're doing good. Do you want to be loved? Of course you do. Love others. Now, this whole thing would be impossible unless God will empower us with his spirit. The emperor of Rome, who got converted as servers, was charmed by the excellence of this rule, and he ordered that everywhere where he goes in his rooms and palace, that this rule will be put on. And he caused this inscription in the most notable parts of his palace hang from the wall. But though it is very simple to understand, and it's very easy to put it on the wall, it is actually impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. But that is why Jesus is saying, prayerfully asking the divine grace to empower you to fulfill the divine requirements. It is all on him. It is all on him. By all means, you cannot obey the commandment. You cannot. You have to go and be a beggar come to God and say, empower me. Now, when I talk about this, I know what's going on through your mind. You say, well, yeah, but how? But how? What does that mean, walk by the Spirit? What does that mean? Why I can't do that? Why I don't feel anything? Why my life is not showing that I'm actually walking by the Spirit? 
Well, you pray. You pray, and, and God promised that the Holy Spirit will write the inscription of his law in your heart and entice you or to press you to fulfill it. He will. I like how John Piper commented on this verse. He said, I need to walk in conscious dependence on the Lord. Conscious dependence on the Lord. On a daily basis. He said, many times when I wake up and still sitting on the side of my bed, this is what I say. This is your Lord day. I want to be at your disposal. I have no idea what this next 24 hours will contain. But before I sip my first cup of coffee, and even before I get dressed, I want you to know that from this moment on, throughout this day, I'm yours, Lord. Help me to lean on you, to draw strength from you, and to have you fill my mind and my thoughts. Take control of my senses so that I'm literally filled with your presence and empowered with your energy. I want to be your tool, your vessel today. I can't make it happen. And so I'm saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit today. Do you know what it means to walk by the spirit? Do you know what it means to be filled with the spirit of God? Prayerfully seeking divine grace. Divine assistance is met for our requirements. And then we could say, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? All to whom God grant forgiveness and righteousness of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the wonderful text. Oh, help us, Lord, as we read the scripture to read it in context because Text without context is just a pretext. Help us not to make out of your word whatever we want, but to see exactly what you're saying. And all you're telling us clearly that after the sermon, there are people who are sitting, still thinking that they are there. But the next passage, it says, enter through the narrow gates. Enter. That is just saying that they're not there. And I know there are many of us thought this way until you burst through the power of the Spirit with your revelation and showed us our depravity and sinfulness. And then you taught us to rely on God and on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for, the, for those who do not know you that you will burst their eyes open, that they will see the impossibility of entrance, that the gates are locked. And that the only way is through Christ Jesus. And for us who are there, that we would rely on the Spirit for we cannot, on our best day, cannot live a moment of perfect righteousness apart from the Holy Spirit. We trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.